Generally, Father, again, we just give this day to you. We thank you for this time that we can be uh, just together in fellowship and in uh, community, Lord, and this time that we can spend with you in your presence. God, I just ask that you would reveal yourself to us through your word this morning. And God, that it would just uh, move us and stir us into closer fellowship and relationship with you and with one another. Lord, I just want to lift up the kids who will be in Kid City today. Just ask your hand uh, over the teachers down there. And uh, that you would just reveal yourself to the children as well. We thank you for again for this time that we can have. In your precious and mighty name we pray. Amen. Alright, you may be seated. Kids can head off to Kid City. Well, just when I thought summer was over, <laughs> it uh, kind of came back. It's a little warm in here. Um, but nonetheless, I'm still happy to be here. I'll sweat through it. That's fine with me. I <laughs> um, just want to welcome you guys uh, to City on a Hill Community Church. Uh, if you're new, visiting, uh, perhaps you've been here before, uh, just a little bit about who we are. Um, we're a non-denominational Bible-believing church and uh, in short, we're founded on two main principles. Number one, the Bible, uh, we believe, is the inerrant word of God. And so what that means is we believe from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, the entirety of Scripture uh, is breathed out by the Holy Spirit, is written by the Holy Spirit um, through human hands. And uh, the second part being is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He took on human form, came to this earth, died on the cross for our sins, and rose three days later from the grave, offering us the opportunity of salvation should we choose to accept that gift. And so that's a little bit about us. Uh, we just want to welcome you today. Uh, we are in the midst of a, it's going to be a long series. We're going through the uh, entire uh, minor prophets. So if you're unfamiliar with the minor prophets in the Bible, they're in the Old Testament. They're the, the last 12 books in the Old Testament. Uh, so far we've gone through Jonah and uh, the beginning portion of Joel we looked at last week. And uh, just a recap for those who weren't here, just a reminder for all of us, is that the book of Joel uh, records a time in Judah where the people have turned from the Lord and they're living in continual sin. And so God's response to this, it begins with a plague of locusts that ravages the land. And it completely wipes out all of their crops and then a famine, of course, ensues with no crops. Uh, and part of their turning from God, it resulted because the older generations had failed to pass down the laws, the history, and the truth of the Lord. In Judges chapter 2, it tells us that there arose another generation, this being the generation after Joshua, that after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And so this application for us today is that, that we're facing really, in my belief, a, a very similar time uh, in our generation, right? Being, out, being raised without the knowledge and the wisdom of the truth of Christ. And we see a world that's falling further into sin and disarray. And, and so there's a call and a responsibility for us as a body of believers, as the church, uh, to raise our children, to raise grandchildren, and the rest of the younger generation to know Christ. And so we concluded last week with uh, verse 12 in chapter 1 of Joel. It says, The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Now some versions of, of scripture will use the word joy rather than gladness. But it tells us though, along with their crops, that the joy had also withered away from the nation of Israel. 
And, and perhaps if that's you this morning, if you've lost your joy, it is possible it's because you're no longer abiding. It's possible that we're no longer abiding if we do not have joy in our life. And what I mean by that is, is that maybe perhaps we used to abide in the Word of God. We used to abide in fellowship with His people. We used to abide in the presence of the Lord. And in that, there was a, a sense of joy. And, and, and not to say that everything in life was perfect in that time, but you could go through the struggles and the trials that we sustained and in, in, in hardships of our life and, and still have joy in the process. But for one reason or another, perhaps your joy is withered. And similar to the nation of Judah, we are called to abide once more in the Lord. Psalm 51 verse 12 says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And that's where we find our joy this morning. That's where we find our joy in life. It's not in the world. It's not in the trivial pursuits of man and, and, and a better life. It's in Christ. It's in his salvation that we can find joy this morning. And so when we lose sight of that, when we forget that, it, it can be so easy to lose our joy in the process. We're seeking it in things that cannot bring sustaining joy in our life. And so with that said, we're going to continue on in Joel chapter 1 this morning and continue into Joel chapter 2. Uh, I'll give you guys a moment to turn there. I encourage you to turn there if you have your Bibles. If not, um, we have Bibles here that you can use under the seats or you can follow along uh, on the screen behind me. Uh, but Joel chapter 1 beginning in verse 13. Uh, and I'd just like to pray before we enter into God's word. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, Again, we just thank you for this time. I just ask that your Holy Spirit would speak in and through me uh, the words and then the message that you have for us today. I just want to lift up each and every person here. Lord, I just ask that uh, your spirit uh, would be with them as well and just, uh, just draw us close to you, Lord God. I just pray that our hearts and our minds it would just be open and receptive to what you have to speak to us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So beginning in verse 13 in chapter 1, it says, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. And so what we see here in verses 13 and 14 is a command to the spiritual leaders of Judah. Something is happening that the people of Israel had never seen before. He even asks that very beginning of chapter 1. And Joel calls out to the spiritual leaders, in other words the priests here, to lead by example. And it's very important that they do so because they are in fact the spiritual leaders and they had been failing at their job up to this point. Now, the putting on of sackcloth back then was an outward demonstration of an inward brokenness in one's life. It was a demonstration, in essence, of a repentant heart. And the sackcloth was very itchy. I imagine it's similar to like a, you know, a sack of potatoes, that, you know, the sack around a potato is something like that. So it'd be very itchy when it's worn, and it was a reminder of the one wearing it of one's condition spiritually. I believe the fasting, however, was probably, you know, whether or not they wanted to do it, they would have to. They had a famine. <laughs> they had no food. So they were fasting regardless. Um, but that was another part of uh, what God was calling them to do. Now the answer here for the nation of Judah is really quite simple, right? They needed to cry out to God. In Second Chronicles 7 verse 14 it says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And again, I, I believe that we're in a very similar position today as a nation. 
Right? We haven't had the locust wipe out our crops, but many have turned from God. Many have forgotten about him, about his word. And while we have no issues filling our stomachs here, I believe that we really are in a spiritual famine of sorts in our nation. And what is needed is this, is that we need to humble ourselves, as it says in Second Chronicles, turn back to God, seek his face, and repent. Now, where does, where does this kind of, of, of thing happen? Where does it start? It doesn't start necessarily with uh, our politicians. It doesn't start with our, our um, country leaders, necessarily. I believe it starts right here in the church. I believe that's where change begins. America needs a revival and in, and in, tr- in need of truth, excuse me, and it has to start with the church and with its leaders. There's a man by the name of Charles Finney, and he had this to say in regards to revival. He said, revival is a renewed conviction of sin and repentance, followed by an intense desire to live in obedience to God. It is giving up one's will to God in deep humility. And he continued by giving examples of when we can expect a revival. One example is when there's a lack of brotherly love among the disciples. Number two, he said, when there's dissensions, jealousies, divisions among believers. But he concludes by saying that revival cannot happen, though, until our hearts are fully given to God. And I think that's that's something we're going to really focus in on this morning. Is that revival, a, a true change of heart, a turning back to God, cannot happen until we are fully devoted to Him. If we're holding on to anything in our own life and not just giving all of our life to God, the revival cannot happen when we're holding on to ourselves in any sort of way. And so we see the first command here in Joel, uh, in the midst of great calamity, is to cry out to God. And I believe it starts individually, with each individual crying out to God. And then we can come together collectively and then corporately among all the churches. But in essence, it is a call to repentance. But I believe that true repentance cannot come until we mourn our sin. If you're familiar with the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 4, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And he's not speaking of just mourning life in general, although I believe that when we are in, in dwelling in the Spirit that we can be comforted in the midst of all sorts of mourning. But he's speaking of conviction of sin. When we're mourning our sin, we will find comfort in the cross. As Pastor John MacArthur, he explains that this speaks of mourning over sin, the godly sorrow that produces repentance leading to salvation without regret. The comfort is the comfort of forgiveness and salvation. And so we continue now in the book of Joel in chapter 15, or verse 15, excuse me. Uh, It says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seeds shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them, even the flocks of sheep suffer. And so what we see here now is a recognition of what is taking place in the nation of Israel. You cannot move forward, you cannot repent or grow without recognizing the situation in your life. The one who who continues to live in sin, who continues to make the same mistakes over and over, is because they cannot or choose not to recognize what is taking place in their life. And so what we see here, the Israelites, is that they take note of what is happening to them. 
And they ask the question, is not the food cut off before our eyes? Is not joy and gladness from the house of our Lord cut off? So these storehouses that were once filled uh, are now sitting empty without food. The granaries are no longer standing. And once more we see, they, they make a note of it again, that joy is no longer in the land. And, and sadly, it, it often takes us reaching this point to realize how far we are from God, right? It takes this, this devastating calamity, this hardship in our life to realize how far we've walked away from God. And so this affliction here has purpose. The nation had forgotten their true God and was living in open sin and opposition to God. And only a great calamity would wake them from their slumber. No, I'm not saying uh, for a minute that every hardship that we face in life is because we are spiritually asleep. That is not what I'm saying. Uh, certainly there are times in life where we go through hardships, in, even in the midst of faithfulness to God. If you look at the book of Job, that's a perfect example. Um, but it is good in times of trial and calamity to, to look inwardly and see where we are uh, in our lives spiritually. You know, if you call back to Jesus' ministry, him and his disciples, they come across a man who's born blind. The disciples ask immediately, who sinned? You know, this, this man or his parents that he was born blind. So they had this, this theological assumption that because he was born blind, something must have happened that was bad. A calamity struck this man because of sin. And, and Jesus is very clear. He said it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so there's times where God will use these hardships and trials in our life, not because we are spiritually asleep, but because he desires his glory to be revealed through it as well. So uh, don't think for a moment that if you're going through hardship and trial that you're immediately, is because you're living in sin. But it is good to look internally and spiritually at ourselves in the midst of hardship. Another thing that we see in this part of the passage this morning is that the flocks and the cattle um, suffer along with the people. It says in verse 18, how the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. So the lesson here for us is this morning is that oftentimes our sin affects just more than just our own lives. Our selfishness has a way of affecting so much more than ourselves. But the thing about selfishness is that we're, we're often too busy looking at ourselves to notice the destruction around us. When we're living in selfish ways, it's, it's very easy to not realize the devastation and destruction it is causing to others. Right? Do, you, do you think that pornography is only affecting yourself? You know, do, do you suppose that you know, your drunken rages are only affecting your own way of life and your, your lifestyle? You know, and we have all these other sins that you, know, that you can hide in the privacy and the darkness. But they still have a way of affecting more than just yourself, right? These, these sins in life have a way of affecting everyone and everything around us and, and leaving everything destroyed in its wake. And so the cattle and the flocks in, the, in this example are the innocent bystanders in this famine, right? They have not sinned against God and yet they are still facing the ill effects of their, their owners, you could say and their devastation and their sinfulness. They weren't the ones that turned their back on God, and yet they faced the same affliction of the nation of Israel. The consequences of sin affect so much more than just yourself, than myself, and we must be aware of that. We must not <laughs> live blindly in our selfish, uh, selfish and sinful ways. And continuing on in Joel chapter 1, now looking at verse 19, he says, To you, O Lord, I call, for the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. 
And so chapter 1, it closes here with, with Joel's personal prayer to God. And in reality, he's lamenting at what has happened and recognizes that the only capable hand of putting a stop to it is the Lord. So he says, to you, O Lord, I call. He's right, I'm not calling out to these pagan gods that many have turned to. I'm not calling to our own ability to, to, to stop this and, and change what is going on. He says, I'm calling out to you, God. Right, he's calling out to God because he understands that he is the only one who can put a stop to this. And Joel also understands that what he is seeking is not deserved. Right? He makes no petition to God to look at the faithfulness of the people because he knows that the faithfulness can't be found among the people. So what Joel is seeking at this moment is the very thing that has been poured out over all of us this morning. He's, he's seeking the grace of God amongst his people. And this is a recurring theme that we'll see uh, throughout the Minor Prophets, but especially that we've seen throughout the book of Jonah and so far in the book of Joel. And so he continues now. I want to read the first 11 verses in Joel chapter 2. I know we're reading a lot of scripture here. Just stay with me. Uh, it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread among the mountain, upon the mountains, a great and powerful people, their like has never been seen before. Nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like a garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As they... As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, people are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Well, that's a pretty devastating uh, imagery there. <laughs> so Joel, first and foremost in verse 1 here, calls for an alarm to be raised. He, he talks about the trumpets being sounded. In ancient Israel, trumpets were used for special occasions or, or to warn of danger. Uh, they had different calls for feasts, you know, if they were moving campsites, uh, if they were preparing for war, or if an enemy was at hand. Um, they all had different calls. And there tends to be also some confusion of what Joel is talking about in chapter 2 here. Right? At first glance, it appears as there's an invading army coming to overtake the land. And uh, using imagery such as horses, warriors, soldiers, he, so what Joel is doing is he paints this bleak picture of what he calls the day of the Lord. In fact, Joel is really talking about two different events altogether. And so it's important to note that many of the, the prophets, the books of the prophets, um, when they give a prophecy, uh, typically they speak of a near fulfillment and a future fulfillment. And so this is the case that we see with Joel chapter 2. In these verses we just read, he speaks of a plague of locusts that ravages the land. And so when you see the words, um, the word like, 
It's written as imagery or a metaphor of the actual thing. So he explains that the locust is like horses, that's like fire, like soldiers, and like warriors. But what I find very interesting is the description that we find in Revelation chapter 9, the words of John. It says here in uh, Revelation chapter 9, 1 through 12, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. There's a connection there. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses, prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months in their tails. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. So another bleak picture of what is called the day of the Lord. John, his book of Revelation, is talking about, again, the day of the Lord. And we note some of the familiarities between uh, the prophecy in Joel and the prophecy in Revelation about the locusts. Again, first the trumpet is blown. The, lo the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. Wings like the noise of many chariots. And so what we see in Joel 2 is a near fulfillment with the plague of locusts that strikes the land of Israel and a future fulfillment in the day of the Lord that speaks of the end times. And so the people hear and they see what has come of their land. They see the devastation that these locusts have caused. And last week we did talk about uh, just how devastating that can be. Um, you know, my mindset of, of locusts is just a bunch of, bunch of bugs flying around. It would be uncomfortable and gross. But in reality, they, they absolutely ravaged the entire land. It says they stripped the bark off all the trees of the field and all their crops were completely wiped out. Um, and so this is a very devastating uh, plague. And so, and so the people have already seen this. They have, they have experienced this, this destruction, and they have felt the struggles of hunger and thirst. But the question arises, what are they to do about it? Right? Well, what are they, what's, what's the next step of action? And then applying it to us today, what are we supposed to do in the midst of a spiritual famine? And so we continue now with uh, three final verses this morning in Joel chapter 2 looking at verses 12 through 14. Now we see God is speaking directly to the people. It says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And so, now we get the biggest, to the biggest point of the passage this morning. What are we to do in light of recognizing our sin? 
So God gives an answer himself in verse 12. He says, yet even now. Very interesting to start off with those words. And I love those words because it grants hope in the midst of sin, right? It says, so meaning even in the light of all the sin and in the midst of all your judgment, you have a chance to turn and repent. Yet yet even now, where you stand, you have a chance to turn back to me. And he says, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. So again, how, how, how are we to return to God? With how much of our heart? Right? With, with some? <laughs> You know, just give me some of your heart and, and things will be okay. No, maybe, maybe just most of our heart. Can we hold on to things in our own life and still rend our hearts to God? No, he says, give me all your hearts, fasting, weeping, and mourning. So again, recall back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn their sin, for they shall be comforted. And so the comfort here for the Israelites this morning is that God would relent on his judgment. The comfort for us this morning is similar, that God would relent on his judgment that, we can be, that is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? Our hope is found in salvation. But also note that God does not make us turn. Similarly to Revelation 3 verse 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and, and eat with him and he with me. Right, so it says he stands at the door and knocks. He doesn't barge the door down and walk right in and invite himself. He is standing there waiting for you to open the door. Of course he wants you to open the door. Of course he wants to help, but he does not force himself upon us. And so if we respond, God will enter. And he does not make us, but he does seek us constantly. He desires us fully, and he will knock continually. But it must be us who opens the door and invites him in. So there is a response that we are responsible for. Now God's quote ends with these words. He says, Rend your hearts and not your garments. Now what does that even mean? Um, that can kind of get lost in, in translation in modern uh, times because we don't really rend clothing anymore unless you're in the WWE. <laughs> Hulk Hogan rends his clothes all the time. Um, but in Hebrew, they had this custom of, of tearing one's clothes. You're like, I don't even know what that means. Now you know. Tearing one's clothes as an outward expression of an inward emotion. So if there was grief, anger, uh, terror, sadness, anything like that, they would rend their garments as an outward sign of what they were feeling uh, inwardly. Um, and so this rending of the garments was actually recorded in Matthew 26. Uh, if you know the story, the scribes and these elders are, are demanding Jesus to say whether or not he is the Son of God. So they're, they're holding him uh, prisoner because of his blasphemous ways. They believe he was blaspheming because he claimed to be the Son of God, which he was. And so they ask once and for all, are you the Son of God? And essentially, Jesus accepts that. He goes, of course, you know, I'm the Son of God. And so we see that the... Uh, the the uh, lead scribe, the priest, tore his garments in anger, or the high priest, excuse me, tore his robes. And that's what rending your garments meant. It meant an outward sign of an inward, um, of an inward feeling or an inward emotion. But now, now God is telling his people here, don't rend your garments, rend your heart. And what God is saying is this, I, I don't want your outward display. I don't want to see this outwardly displayed. I want to see it inward, <laughs> inwardly. I want to see an actual change in your heart. I want inward devotion. So a rending of the heart is what God wants here. And, we, and so we can do all these outward displays that we want, right? We can, we can come to church and put on a show for ourselves and for those around us. We can act and do and say, and all, say all the right things. And, and certainly we can fool people. But 
We certainly won't fool God. So he desired true heart change over outward appearance of change. It's very similar to the Pharisees when Jesus said that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So we can do and say again all the right things, but if there's a lack of heart change, it means nothing, and God knows anyway. So why, why fake it if God already knows our hearts? And so after God speaks, we see that Joel speaks next. And what are the first words that he says? He gives an exhortation of sorts. He says, return to the Lord your God. Now why would they do that? Why would they return to the Lord? Well, I think the answer is in verse 13. He says, for God is gracious, there's that word again, and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. It's actually the same exact description Jonah gave of God. You might not remember this, but from two weeks ago, we read in Jonah chapter 4, uh, verse 2, the reason behind Jonah fleeing um, and not answering the call of God obediently was because he says, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I mean, that's almost verbatim. Uh, it's, it very well could be that Jonah took from, uh, from the book of Joel when he said that. So what we see again is God's character as described here time and time again, right? And we see these qualities in God, and I've, I've certainly seen them in my own life, and so I know it to be true, exactly what they call him to be, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. And I hope and pray that you have also seen that in your lives, or your eyes have been opened to see that in your own life. Romans 5 verse 20 explains it so well. It says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Scripture also tells us that, well, we were in our sin, Christ died for us. It wasn't when we got right and figured things out and figured life on our own that God said, okay, now it's time for me to, to sacrifice myself for you. It says that in the midst of our sin and our brokenness and our essentially without hope that he died for us. It was nothing that we did. And so again, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so when our eyes are focused inwardly on ourselves, we have this tendency to really completely lose sight of the character of God. At least I'm guilty of it. When my eyes are focused inward, when I'm, when I'm selfish in my ways, that I forget and, and not even recognize the character of God. I don't see his grace, his mercy, his patience, and love. And so we tend to forget about it altogether, right? And, and when things don't go our way, the enemy has a tendency to slip in and, and, see, and just say things like, see, God doesn't really love you, right? He doesn't want what's best for you. If he did, he would allow that thing to happen or to take place. And if our focus remains on ourselves rather than God, we can begin to fall for the deception and we begin to live a life in open rebellion to God. But thankfully, Scripture tells us, and it's been proven time and again, that God is slow to anger. In other words, he is long-suffering. We see that with the people of Israel time and time again. They constantly turn from him. They forget about what he's done for them. They forget about escaping Egypt. They forget about um, God eventually, after they've wandered the desert, find the promised land. But we see that he is slow to anger. We see that with the city of Nineveh, a, a, a pagan city that was fully turned from God, that turned back to him. And so we must be careful, though, lastly, guys, to not misinterpret 
God's patience. There's a former pastor of mine that that had some really wise words to say about this. He said, don't mistake God's long-suffering for his acceptance of the way you are living. He's long-suffering because he doesn't wish that any should perish and that we would rend our hearts and not our garments. So do not mistake God's long-suffering for his acceptance of a life that is dwelling and living openly in sin. Okay? Be very careful of that. Because we also know that God is always faithful. And that's a wonderful thing to remember, that God is always faithful in the midst of hardship and trial, that he is always faithful. But it's also a warning shot, so to speak, that God is always faithful. So if you continue to turn your back on God and live in sin, be reminded that he is also always faithful. So that means, in other words, that God is not a God who gives empty threats. What he says will come to pass, but he oftentimes gives us time to return to him. We see in the book of Joel, return back to God and and perhaps he'll relent. We see with the, the city of Nineveh, he gave them time to turn and he relented. And so my prayer for us, not just as a church but as a nation, is that we would find revival of sorts in this country, that we would find... Uh, that we would turn back to God fully, that we would mourn our sin, right? Not just kind of say, well, you know, it is what it is. I don't, like, I don't like it, I don't agree with it, but it is what it is. We should mourn our sin, okay? And I'm guilty of not mourning my sin from time to time. But we need to be in a place where we see our sin for what it truly is before the feet of God and recognize how awful it truly is. Remember a man like uh, Isaiah. He, <laughs> he was a prophet of God. He was a holy man. And he kind of was was speaking ill against the people of Israel uh, before God. And then God shows himself up in this this place. And uh, as he's in the presence of God, he realizes how broken and how sinful he truly is. Um, And and so he says, Woe is me, for I'm a a man of unclean lips uh, before the Lord. And uh, scripture also tells us that our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags before the Lord. So even the, the, the most righteous acts that we can present before God is really just filthy rags in his presence. Uh, so we have to do a very, we have to be very careful of not comparing ourselves to the world around us, but rather comparing ourselves before God, comparing ourselves to Jesus, in other words. Uh, that is where we'll find, uh, you know, how truly unrighteous we are and how, how much we truly need Jesus in our lives to, to, uh, to save us. And so, guys, I just want to, I know we had communion a couple weeks ago, um, but I just figured this is another um, opportunity to really rend our hearts back to God. That's what this message is all about. This is what Joel is saying. You know, I don't, he, God doesn't want this outward devotion. He doesn't, he doesn't want this, this outward appearance that we are uh, rending our hearts to God, that we are truly mourning our sin, that we're truly mourning the way we live in rebellion to God. He wants actual heart change. And so, uh, we're offering communion again today um, and you, you, most of you know that you don't have to be a member here to partake in communion you just, the only thing we ask is that you are a believer that you place your faith in Jesus um, but also don't take it lightly don't just go through the motions right? that's what this is all about not rending our garments in a sense this could be like rending our garments today is taking communion but certainly take communion if you've rendered your heart that's, is that the past tense or <laughs> I'm not sure but rend your hearts before God um, above all else. You know, God doesn't want outward displays of devotion. He wants an inward, true devotion in our lives. And so, um, when I, I'll begin playing a song, and when you guys feel like you, you are ready to uh, take communion, you're welcome to come up. You can take it right here at the altar, or you can take it back to your seat uh, and have communion there. Uh, the choice is yours. Um, but I'll begin singing, and uh, you guys are welcome to take it at any time. <laughs>